милой шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И при виде их на момент прийти, и сердца наши замляли. Hello and welcome to the SRB podcast. In each episode, we discuss Eurasian politics, culture, and history. As always, I'm your host, Sean Guillory. The SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and members of the SRB Table of Ranks, who give monthly contributions from anywhere between $5 to $25. If you'd like to support this podcast, go to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash Sean's Russia blog or to srbpodcast.org and hit that Patreon button and join the Table of Ranks. Our knowledge of the Soviet penal system has substantially increased in the last 30 years. Yet our knowledge of the camps as a lived experience remains relatively incomplete and based on either administrative documents or memoirs of mostly victims of political repression. But Gulag life had its own culture, symbols, and rituals, and much of it came from the long history of criminal subculture beginning in Imperial Russia and the criminals who made up the majority of Gulag inmates in the 1930s. Gulag criminal subculture included initiation rituals, tattoos, black market activity, card playing, and prisoner-run courts, to name a few. And after Stalin's death, these cultural forms had a profound influence on Soviet culture, and it continues today in the representation of the Russian mafia in films and in Russian criminal folklore. For more on Gulag criminal subculture, its history and meanings, I turned to Mark Vincent to talk about his book, Criminal Subculture in the Gulag, Prisoner Society in the Late Stalinist Labor Camps. Mark Vincent is a historian based at the University of East Anglia in the United Kingdom, specializing on Russian criminality and criminal culture. He's the author of Criminal Subculture in the Gulag, Prisoner Society in the Stalinist Labor Camps, published by Bloomsbury. Here's Mark Vincent. Okay, uh, so Mark, we're going to uh, talk about this book of yours, uh, which is a very interesting and, and I think uh, something that's been far needed to, to in terms of the history of the Gulag. And the, and the book's title is A Criminal Subculture in the Gulag, Prison Society in in the Stalinist Labor Camps, 1924 to 53. So just to start, I'd like to have you introduce yourself. Uh, yes, absolutely. So um, well, thanks, first of all, for inviting me on to the, to the show, Sean. It's an absolute uh, pleasure to be here. Um, so I'm Dr. Mark Vincent. I'm a historian based in the UK at the University of East Anglia in Norwich. Um, I have spent most of my, 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 um, my time focusing on the Gulag, which we'll, we'll get into during the episode today, but also more broadly criminality and penality. Um, in Russia and the Soviet Union in the 19th and 20th century. How did you how did you get interested in this topic? <laughs> uh, I watched a, a a kind of mainstream Hollywood film, uh, which is called Eastern Promises, uh, which I'm I'm not sure if you've seen this film or not, Sean. But it's got Viggo Mortensen in. Right, I haven't seen it, but yeah, it's um, the Russian mafia based in London. It's an in- incredibly violent film, um, but. I got very interested in um, Viggo Mortensen's character in particular, and um, even more specifically, the, the tattoos that he has. 
uh, so which I'm, I'm sure you, you will have seen that, you know, the, the various kind of tattoos signifying ranks within the mafia organization and so on. So um, that, that, that film, um, which is set in contemporary London, was, was kind of my way into um, bizarrely the Soviet Union in the 1930s, 1940s and, and the Gulag. So it's, uh, I, I don't think it's a very straightforward route, but certainly, um, at least in my mind, everything connected and fell into place. You know, it's, it's like I said, it's, I think your book is a long time coming because most of the histories of the gulag that, uh, that have been written focus, you know, mostly of course on the issue of politicals. Um, you know, a lot of the memory of, of the gulag is about politicals or people who were imprisoned under, you know, political persecution in a variety of ways or issues of forced labor. Um, but the, the fact that, the vast majority of the Gulag population were, you know, criminals uh, is something that hasn't been treated. And so I, I was curious as to why do you think that's the case? I, I think, first of all, um, it, it comes through the fact that the, 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 the majority of the sources that were available to us, at least uh, you know, initially, uh, were, were prisoner memoirs. So obviously Solzhenitsyn and Ginsberg and Shalamov and, and Yanuz Bardach and so on. Um, so I think because of, in the first instance at least, having those memoirs and then obviously the, the archives open up, I think that that kind of created um, this this focus on the political prisoners and I, I, and that's the most kind of extreme form of the of what the Gulag represents as well. You know the the repression of um, of the of the politicals. So I am absolutely indebted to those to those memoirs and um, to the other scholars whose work has looked at the at the Gulag as well. But like you, like you've said, the majority of it really focuses on the experience of the um, of the politicals who are more often not un, under Article Fifty Eight. So uh, I, I think that would be the that would be the reason behind it. And so I kind of followed a similar path to to the, to, to, to other scholars or people who've just read about the, the Gulag um, through prisoner memoirs more more generally. But I think I became fascinated in some of the kind of background actors if we if we kind of think about the memoirs in in that way. Yeah. Um, so. And given this, and the fact that you're you're focusing on criminals uh, and and their subculture and and you know experience within within the camps, um, what is the story you're trying to tell? I think really, um, perhaps not so much of a story, but maybe just trying to kind of change the the, the angle of how we're looking at um, camp society. You know, this kind of you know prisoner universe. Um, so. Although my main source base comes from the politicals, I am trying to then um, focus on a, a, a different group there. So if we kind of imagine, uh, you know, the, the, the barracks and this, you know, various goings on in there and the politicals huddled together um, and the other prisoners um, who are you know, kind of taking their own places um, and involved in group activities because of, um, you know, their, their background. Uh, may, maybe it's one of uh, recidivism or maybe it's just because of their nationalities. I think like, my main... Um, like the, the the one thing I wanted to do with the book was just kind of open a larger discussion in the hope that someone might come after me and, and look at another group of, of different prisoners following that. So we just, we get a kind of more broader universe of, um, you know, of experience of the Gulag. So you start, you start off by, by talking about, um, what's basically for the 49ers, people who were, who are convicted under article 49, rather than those who are convicted under article 58, which you said, you know, the politicals that we're most familiar with. So who were the 49ers? Oh, it's a very, um, it's a, re a, a very, a very difficult thing to, to, um, uh, to, to try and describe really. I, 
I'd, I'd never heard of the 49ers before. And I, you know, coming into the, um, the, the PhD, which then, which then became the book, um, I'd already um, gone through a lot of memoirs up to that point. So I, I had a good sense of who the 58ers were, but I, I never really read about 49ers or, or, or groups under different articles of the criminal code. So um, I, I, I think we can, we can kind of consider them to be, uh, to, to be male and to be uh, very, very kind of broadly between the ages of um, maybe 25 and, and, you know, kind of like f- and, and 50, I suppose. Uh, and predominantly Russian, I think, in most instances as well. But it certainly encompasses such a kind of large group of prisoners that are, you know, thrown together un- under this article. It's a very wide ranging article of the criminal code anyway, which, which you know, m- means that me trying to describe that group is, you know, um, it, it, it's very difficult. And what is the what is the article like? What is the what is the crimes under it? So it like so it's an article as like as as far as I'm I'm aware, and I don't have as detailed knowledge of the you know the of the, the criminal code as um, perhaps other other scholars do. Um, it's it's the article which prevents you from travelling around. So it kind of fascinates me in terms of you know kind of like how we exercise control over space and so on. So it's actually. Um, the code that means that you're you're banned from certain cities essentially um and the art, article 49 often comes alongside another more traditional um, crime i suppose so you'll have article 49 which which prevents you from traveling around but also you'll be imprisoned under another article perhaps say for armed robbery or arson or whatever it might be um so it, it represents the the article of the criminal code that stops stops um, recidivists essentially from travelling around once they've once they've left the camps. And 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 I get I mean I kind of I, maybe you can correct me but my impression is is that was this a, a, a collective identity like the, do prisoners see themselves as part of you know like 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 the fifty eighters right are people in Article fifty eight have a have a kind of collective. Uh, um, identity around that article. Is there something similar with the forty nine with the Article forty nine? Well, well, so um, in the in the nineteen twenties, I'm sure Sean, you're you're familiar as are quite a lot of the listeners with um, the the camps which are across the uh, archipelago and uh, the Solovetsky Islands. So uh, a prisoner from Solovki in the nineteen twenties writes a pamphlet which is titled Forty Nine, and so I, I managed to get hold of this pamphlet. Um, the prisoner's name is Boris Glubakovsky, who's kind of fascinating individual in his own right. Um, so it's actually, I mean, he's from a theatrical background. He certainly falls into the category of a political prisoner. Um, so he is using the term 49ers to describe um, the the um, criminal kind of recidivists that are there with him uh, on the archipelago. So um, I don't know whether the recidivists themselves adopt that label or whether it just continues to be one which is, um, which is used by the politicals and the administration towards them. But I, I mean, I, I, I strongly suspect that um, the recidivists would um, identify in some way with it, though. You know, they would understand that, you know, that's them and that's the article of the criminal code they're under. So um, I'm again using um, the, the kind of eyes or the, the, the writings of a political prisoner to fashion this term 49ers. But um, whether they self-identify as 49ers or not is a, is a difficult question to answer because of the, the, the sources. 
So you're looking at the the subculture within the camps and and how it reflects in society more broadly. Um, but of course, you begin before 1917. It, talking about criminal culture in imperial Russia. So just to kind of set up the context for the Soviet period, what, what are some of the main themes of a criminal subculture before 1917? Well, I, I think, um, Sean, for me, um, and, and there are some excellent books, of course, on this, uh, Dan, Dan Beer's um, recent publication, Sarah Badcock's work as well. Uh, I think in terms of the hierarchy, like that's the one thing that continues after, after um after 1917. So we have a very kind of strong um, penal uh, hierarchy that's in place um, in, the, in the camps of the, of the 19th century. Um, and that very much continues, but also there's a strong hierarchy within the, the gangs as well, the recidivist gangs, the criminal gangs, which continues, even if some of the names for the prisoners change. Um, and again, Sarah Badcock's book and Dan Beers, but go into detail about the, the, the different types of prisoner um, in, in uh, camps such as um, Sahalin, for example, and, and, and elsewhere. Um, we also see the beginnings of the tattooing culture as well, which is another uh, yeah, um, yeah, part of this, which, which fascinates me, as I kind of alluded to right, right at the beginning. Um, we, we get uh, prisoner slang as well, even though that after the, you know, th this is this is something which is in constant change and it's very, very difficult to keep up with. But certainly the, there is a slang amongst um, prisoners and criminals in wider society before 1917, and that continues to exist afterwards. Uh, and and a lot of the uh, the different types of rituals um, in regards to punishment, um, in terms of what prisoners are doing to, to you know to, to each other, um, forms of justice against uh, against other prisoners and so on. So there are certainly a lot of um, there are a lot of threads that that I was able to take from the the scholarship on um, the the penal system before 1917 and pick it back up again uh, in the camps of the 1920s and then continue that through chronologically into the into the period of the gulag in the in the you know, early 1930s and then onwards um just just to be clear so so listeners understand like what kind of crimes would uh you know if you mentioned recidivism repeatedly so of course these are people who've been convicted you know been in in prison came out convicted you know of other crimes uh, what kind of crimes would land you into into um, one of these camps and get you the Article Forty Nine designation? I think it would like it's possibly best just to think of it as n normal crimes, if that if that makes any sense. You know, the the types of um, crimes that we see on and again in like Hollywood movies all the time. You know, like so, so bank robbery, arson, uh, theft uh, of ver various different um, kind of scales, I suppose. Um, so it would be anything that. Um, like we we would assume that people would be punished for in a, in a, in kind of Western society, I suppose that would be my best way of kind of fashioning like you know what kinds of crimes would you, would you have to have committed to to fit into that uh, category? And do you do you have a sense of what per percentage of the the gulag camps were you know these types of criminals? I think it's 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 rel it's, it's relatively low actually. So I I, I think that. Uh, and this has been um, suggested in in Steve Barnes's book and, and by by other scholars as well. That actually, um, that there is a, quite a low proportion of political prisoners, even though you know that we have these um, excellent you know kind of memoirs that that come from their experience. And I, I think actually the the um, the groups that I'm talking about represent a con like maybe around ten percent actually. Um, and in the middle of that, we have people who are kind of caught up in uh, in, in in collectivization, for example. 
um, and you know they're referred to in, in, in kind of certain ways, um, mostly kind of derogatory by the by the recidivist prisoners that I'm looking at. Um, so it is a reasonably small percentage, maybe maybe around ten percent. But the um, the fact that they have such a um, they they have such an influence over camp life, I think, is one of the things that, that really stood out to me when I was beginning to research into this into this particular group. What, what do you mean by that? That they had such a, a large influence? Well, I think particularly when when we look at the camp system um, uh, towards the end and 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 then following the uh, the Second World War, um, we have this uh, we we have a conflict that breaks out amongst criminal gangs, um, and and this this profoundly affects the entire camp system. You know, the administ- administration are struggling to control it, and we have the political prisoners caught up in this, and we also have the involvement of um, a lot of a lot of people coming into the camps with um, military experience as well, uh, which adds a, s- a slightly different dimension to the uh, to, to the to, to the, the camp kind of world during this time. So, I think given the small percentage of um, uh, criminal gangs, um, re- you know, re- yeah, recidivists in the sense that I'm talking about them, um, the fact that they do cause so many problems for other prisoners and for the administration is is quite staggering. So you've mentioned already that a lot of your sources come from these memoirs, and a lot of them are, are, are memoirs that many of us are familiar with in terms of they're written by politicals. Um, talk about these, you know, and I remember reading like, you know, from Solzhenitsyn and some other sources, you know, the way they speak about the the, the, the actual criminals in the gulag is, is really quite horrifying in terms of the persecution of, of politicals, the way they're treated, the way they, the criminals and the camp administration have a, you know, cozy, sometimes cozy relationship. Um, and, so to talk about the these prisoner these memoirs, but also you have some prisoner memoirs as well. So what are some of the um, what kind of window do they give us into the prisoner world? And so um, the memoirs are revealing in all, all kinds of different ways. And I try to read as many memoirs from 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 cover to cover, not just flicking through and looking for instances where there is a um, you know, mention of a high ranking you know, cr- criminal. Um, as part of a gang, for instance, but um, I, I, I think in order to construct a, a picture of, of camp life, the memoirs are absolutely essential. You know, the bureaucratic documents um, are very dry in, in, in terms of what actually goes on, you know, inside the barracks uh, once prisoners are, are kind of shut away there for, for the evening. So um, I think that uh, the memoirs um, provide us with. Um, you know this incredible tapestry of of you know what is what is actually like you know to, to to be in one of these camps i mean what what people are talking about what what minimal food um you know that they're able to eat um but also most most notably um it's um the the the, the attitudes towards different groups of prisoners um and in in that sense um the the political prisoners the majority of the memoirs um are, are um are fairly derogatory towards the, the the criminal gangs, as you can you can imagine, considering some of the activities that they're up to uh, while they're on transportation or when they're in the barracks and so on. So I think the biggest problem I had with the memoirs is is um, how to deal with the the, the kind of um, uh, the taboo subjects or the things that the memoirists don't talk about, but also some of the kind of metaphors which often come like kind of bestial metaphors that are given to criminal gangs was the memoirists are recounting instances of rape and murder so I, I, you know it's it's understandable that they would be describing um the um recidivist the cr- criminals in in this sense but it, for me to 
to, to try to develop more of an understanding of why those things are happening in a place at a certain time. I had to kind of go beyond the, uh, some of the, the language that's used, if, if that uh, makes sense. And what different and what do you get from, say, some of the prison prisoner memoirs, uh, the criminal memoirs that you have? Like what what do they give you a different window into that world? I think there are there are uh, there are very very little memoirs that are written by uh, anyone who would fall into this kind of category of forty ers or recidivists or criminal gangs, however, however you might term them. Um, there there is um, there, there's there's only one which is is available uh, kind of to us or to, to me when I was researching this project, um, and there are suggestions that the the memoir that is written by someone who suggests that they are a criminal prisoner um, that that in fact is is fictionalized heavenly so um, i've had to rely uh, like the the kind of mosaic that i've created is has come from um, from from various different sources for instance i use the uh, i use um, slang and tattoos and um, I tr try to bring in as much um, criminology and penology and, and sociology as possible. But in fact, there are there are there are barely any memoirs that are reliable that come from uh, any of the prisoners that would fall fall into this this category of 49ers. So talk about, uh, uh, you know, what is criminal subculture in the gulag? What are some aspects and, you know, about the what are the what is the tattooing and the slang tell you about about life there? Uh, first of all, it's a very problematic title for a book, <laughs> um, given that I, I find it very difficult uh, as someone who, who focuses on uh, kind of s semiotics and labeling theory. Um, so having criminal and subculture in there is is, is a tough one. Um, so I think it's it, more more than anything else. It's a kind of, it's, it's a representation of how I've tried to pull different sources together in order to, to you know to, to to form a better picture of um you know like who these criminals are are these gangs are that are discussed so much in in in, in the memoirs and are represented in the bureaucratic documents um you know on occasion as well. Um, so I tried to think of the structure of the book in terms of um. In terms of enactment and rituals, and and and, and that's largely how the um, the chapters re remain, you know, uh, and laid out and, and in the in the final version. So I looked at um, yeah, uh, the transportation process. I I felt was particularly important and something that's been quite overlooked, I think, in scholarship in the past. Um, the importance of what happens when you're you're kind of leaving the the. the the prison to, to, to go to these destinations, which of course, you know, takes, takes, takes weeks and months sometimes. Um, but really I focused on the different rituals. So the kind of initiation process once, once, um, prisoners arrived at the camp. So what the recidivist gangs and these criminal groups were doing to kind of, um, in, indoctrinate, um, new members, for example, uh, I, I looked at, um, various forms of, 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 of language, so the kind of visual and verbal communication. So, the the, the tattoos fairly obviously play, played a heavy role in that, as, as did the um, the amount of uh, di dictionaries of camp slang. So, I, I benefited hugely from the fact that these dictionaries of, of of prisoner slang from the Gulag became really popular in the 1990s. So, I got my hands on uh, you know as much as possible, uh, and, and also um, to, to look at the um, forms of justice and, and the uh, punishment rituals I, I've already mentioned. In fact, the, one of the first things that I became incredibly interested in in terms of the rituals was the fact that uh, within the barracks, um, the, 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 the criminal gangs, these you know, recidivist groups, um, will hold their own court proceedings. 
um, and they'll have judges sitting there and it'll, 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 it'll follow, you know, kind of judicial practices outside the camps, uh, almost to the letter. Um, but invariably, the, you know, the, 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 the decision that is made, the result of it will, will be incredibly violent. And it just kind of it, it, it just struck me, like, why these why do these proceedings actually exist if uh, if, if the end result is fairly predictable in the first place? And did you do you have an answer? No, other than I, I think mimicking the practices which are, which have been part of their own journey to the camps um, and offering some kind of like validity to it as well. I, I, um, I don't think that a lot of the gangs that I certainly I'm looking at um, have a have a strict um, set of rules. I think they have a a code of behavior and a code, you know, and, and, and um, most of that is just kind of opposition to any form of authority. Um, but I, 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 yeah, I think, it, um, and obviously, I mean, a big part of this is because they're just shutting the barracks in the evenings as well. Um, well, whilst at, at times they'll have, you know, stories read aloud for the group, other times they'll, they'll enact different court proceedings and um, that, that it was, it was again, something that really kind of stood out. I think it's, it, it's the same with card playing, Sean, as well. Like to some extent, it's the kind of monotony of the experience that leads to um, the, you know, the the fact that these practices become so widespread. So you've spoken about the the, the transportation journey, which you know anyone who reads uh, from the nineteenth century, this is also a major theme. Uh, you've you've spoken about various kind of rituals, rituals of initiation, rituals of punishment. I, I like to give you, have you give some some kind of concrete examples or stories that stood out to you that represent some of these things. Like what what was the initiation process like? Like what what would one could be confronted with once they arrived in in the camp? So um, the initiation process is, I think, like like similar to what we might envisage as you know for for um, different criminal groups on the outside so not just not just specific to Russia and the Soviet Union but sort kind of like new recruits will be will, will you know will will be told you need to go and um, you need to steal this from from you know you know from wherever this store cupboard is or from another prisoner or so on um, at other times they'll have to recite addresses in criminal slang to show that they're um, you, you know, to, to 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 show that they've understood that 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 part of being part of this 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 group, as well. So largely, they are uh, it, like giving new recruits um, tasks that the the higher ranking members don't want to do, um, just to kind of prove prove their loyalty essentially. Which is, I think, the same as a lot of the street gangs of the 1920s, for example. Um, uh, there are some some there are some slightly more bizarre rituals. Uh, there's um, uh, several instances where towels are placed on the floor going into the barracks. So after going out for work duties, there'll be one towel placed down by the by the entranceway, and uh, uh, and most people will understand that towel is is just reserved for the for the you know these criminal gangs, the recidivists. And if any if any prisoner doesn't realise that, not normally um, you know prisoners from more of a kind of like uh, you know a, a a background familiar to us as kind of political prisoner and they and they attempted to wipe their feet on the towel then you, i mean I, I don't need to probably tell you what the consequences for that would be so there are some slightly kind of niche different rituals that are involved but a lot of them are kind of t- are, are tests of, of of loyalty essentially and 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 trust as well trust being such a you know important um 
part of the you know camp experience and um, amongst the prisoners, whatever their different background is. So, so what what were some of the relationships between, say, this group of criminals with other inmates and the camp administration? Because you know, like I said before, like a lot of memoirs, me- this is a theme in the memoirs, like well, you know, the role of the these criminal gangs within the gulag as both you know perpetrators of violence, but also in some cases even you know running the the, the prison like you would find in other societies. I think recognizing first of all that the camps are very poorly staffed. <laughs> um, Make, makes um, what, I'm, you know, what I'm about to explain, I, I'd like I, it, it, it becomes like an obvious thing, I suppose. So the camps being very kind of poorly staffed, I think the administration um, you, like used the, the kind of traditional opposition from the, you know, the, the working class, lower class recidivist prisoners towards um, anyone from kind of middle, upper classes, which is where the you know, political prisoners are, are, are mostly from. Um, they use that hostility enable to um, exercise some form of control. You know, they use high ranking criminal um, groups or even just high ranking kind of leaders um, amongst these um, amongst these different gangs just to keep the other prisoners in line, essentially. And I think that comes down to um, you know, the exercise of control over these vast, um, sw- you know, vast areas that the camps cover. Uh, there's. there's there's no uh, agreement that's written you know, or, or, or any kind of operational order that exists, but I think this is just um, it kind of falls into um, what, what Irving Goffman describes as kind of the underlife of the institution. You know, the 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 informal rules that are very kind of well understood by both administration by and by the prisoners as well. Um, so the administration certainly used the recidivist gangs or even just one really high-ranking um, gang you know, gang member, the the leader essentially. Um, you know, to, to control the others. And from if I, my memory, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, you know, uh, there's an element of the camp administration itself who are sent to administer these camps because they themselves have violated some kind of, you know, uh, their their position or some sort of criminality within their, their bureaucracy. Is it, isn't that the case in, in many cases? Yes, uh, yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, this feeds into the same thing about the camps being, you know, it's, they, they find it very hard to staff the camps and, and the being, you know, it's a punishment, you know, for, for you know, for, for, for some some people who, you know, perhaps work in, for the NKVD in Moscow um, to be sent out to, you know, to Siberia. And there's, there, there are there are links between the high-ranking prisoners and and the camp administration, or certainly the guards. Anyway, we have a, a really kind of thriving black market in a lot of areas, and and Wilson Bell's work actually goes into a lot of detail um, about this. So we we do have um, we do have clear links between the, the camp staff and the high-ranking recidivists or crim- criminal pis- prisoners um, in in terms of the operation of the black market and prostitution as well. Um, so there are, there are some things which tie the two groups together rather than, you know, alongside this kind of thing, you know, the, the understanding that I've suggested about the control over, over the prisoners. Um, years ago, when I was an undergraduate, I, I did some research on a soul of key and in particular, there was a massacre there in the early twenties, um, where, uh, there, the politicals that were there were protesting, um, for, because they were given at that time, they still had a certain level of rights, and, and one of the things that I re- remember was they they were technically separate. Like the politicals had a they had they were separated from the criminals, and one of the things that the 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 camp administration did in result of this after you know 
besides shooting a bunch of these, a massacre of some of the politicals, is that the remaining ones, they kind of, they got rid of the separation and then they scattered them to other camps. Um, was that separation, like, did, did was that the case in the early 20s? And then what happened to it? And why was it, uh, why, and were they all eventually just mixed together? I'm trying to understand the various geography of, of the various groups of the camps. I, I think that... Um... That, that separation begins at Solov Key, like as as you've said. Like if you look at the um, uh, the the memoirs from Solov Key, and there, there's plenty of other um, in, yeah information. Um, and Andre Galotta has written an excellent book recently about Solov Key, um, about intellectual life there. Um, so I think Solov Key is is the is the point where um, things really switch from. Um, there is a, a kind of hangover of, of, of what happened before the revolution. So, in you know, the, the, you know, the, the, the camps in the 19th century, the ordinary um, convicts and political prisoners will be separated. And like, to some extent, this continues during the early stages of Solov Key, but over time and with instances like um, the, the massacre that you're talking about, this begins to, to kind of break down. And I think when we get to the... Um, uh, we, 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 when we get to the to the early 1930s, when the gulag is kind of fashioned, um, and then obviously continues to to develop throughout that decade, but I think Solov Key is a really key point for this switch between some of the some of the things which have um, uh, have con continues to happen from before the revolution, and you know t to what will be the case in the 1930s and then 1940s as well. Now you mentioned that there is this, you know, essentially what's what was called the bitches war. Uh, of of criminals within the gulag that really has a profound you know watershed moment in terms of the way the camps are administrator administrated so talk talk about what this bitches war was and and its significance for you know both soviet criminality and the penal system as in general uh so um in terms of um uh, criminality. I, I, I think it becomes very important when we get to, to, the, to the end of the 20th century and see the emergence of the mafia organisation. So perhaps something I'll, I'll come back to. And um, so the, 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 this, this conflict, the, the bitches war, um, really happens as a result of um, the amount of prisoners who are released essentially to kind of front, fight on the front lines during the Second World War. And there's a very good uh, Russian TV show about these kind of penal battalions. Um, so we have a huge amount of prisoners who are released and they go and fight um, and they are, you know, they, they are, and, and after the fighting ends, then obviously they, they are reintegrated back into society quite a lot of the time. They'll, they'll commit crimes um, fairly soon after that and they'll return to the camps. So it, essentially the bitches war is the animosity between prisoners who have stayed during the conflict towards the ones who've left to fight for, for the, the regime for the, you know, for, for, for the Soviet Union. Um, so the, it's, the bitches war emerges because of the returning prisoners um, and they are met by uh, an intense amount of hostility. I think the most important tenet of this, the code amongst you know, the 49ers, recidivists, however we might, might turn them is um, uh, it, it, the, the most important um, uh, mindset for them to have is opposition to any authority. And of course, fighting for the regime during the second world war goes completely against that. So uh, and essentially, we get the battle lines kind of being drawn by that conflict, and then we get the emergence of um, you know a, a really strong group um, known as the the thieves in law, uh, which is where it kind of relates to the mafia organisations who emerge later. Um, so we get the bitches, and then on the other side, the thieves. So this this conflict, um, it 
it, it, it covers it encompasses um, a, a lot of the the gulag system during this time you know camps which are um, in Kazakhstan so you know, Steve Barnes's book covers the uh, Karlag um, in incredible detail and, and also we get camps which are you know in Siberia they're 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 all, they're affected um, by uh, this conflict between different prisoner groups um, of a kind of recidivist background and we get the administration then really struggling to um, stop the violence which is which is barbaric at times you know, we get beheadings for example happening um, but you know such is the kind of intensity of of um, of, the, of these uh, the groups towards each other. I want to ask you about tattoos um, because you know these are are and thanks to um, these these books published by uh, Danzig Baldaev, uh we we actually have the art of this and it, he, a lot of these books have really preserved uh, this kind of visual culture uh, of the Gulag. Um, I, I, Talk about some of the tattoos and what their meaning was, but I, I'd also like you, if you if you can, to tell us about uh, Baldaev and who he was, and and you know as a figure. Uh, like, um, well, fortunately, my my project that I'm working on at the moment, Sean, um, is is with Fuel, uh, who have uh, who have um, the the Baldaev archive. So we're working on a book together that should be should be published next year. So I've had the opportunity to work with. Um, with, with Baldaev's scrapbooks and look at his uh, annotations on the back of some of the drawings for the last year or so, which has been uh, been absolutely fascinating. So, uh, um, Baldaev, um, he is um, he is for uh, he, he is of uh, uh, Buryat uh, descent, um, and he um, he fights in the in the Second World War, and then he he starts working at uh, one of the prisons in in Leningrad. Um, from the, from there, he kind of makes a switch into the into the MVD, and he's able to use his kind of MVD access um, to um, to to draw a lot of, of of tattoos from from prisoners who are in in the Gulag, and and also in in um, at times in, in in other institutions, you know, juvenile institutions, homeless shelters, and so on. Um, so, like Baldaev works for the MVD for uh, like approaching thirty five years, and so his 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 um his his collection of drawings is very extensive uh, and also he he keeps reasonably detailed kind of scrapbooks with some you know like fascinating photos in there as well so um yeah bald eye of his like provides me with a different kind of set of eyes almost to look at the uh you know the criminal the criminal prisoners um so um i've benefited from this archive also um, for, for you know for, for the criminal subculture book um, in, in in a slightly more kind of limited way, um, but certainly it was what I was able to show with the tattoo drawings is that the the more kind of detailed codification really ha begins to happen after the Second World War, um, and the Baldives drawings that that's that's roughly when they you know when they when they start as well. Um, so what we now associate with the mafia gangs and having um, stars on your uh, on your knees and so on that that really um, takes off in the second half of the of the 20th century. A lot of the tattoos before then are, are um, they're, they're they're much more focused on I mean a whole range of different things, but um, there is you know they have more of an aesthetic certainly, um, and a, a, you know a, a lot of them are, are quite kind of common images like skulls and and snakes and and. Uh, and and so on so i i think for, most importantly for the book though i really was able to to use um how the um 
how the tattoo artists, how the recidivists who had these images tattooed, uh, they kind of mimicked a lot of propaganda as well during this time. So there's a very famous um, Dimitri Moore, like, have you volunteered poster from the Civil War, for example, I'm sure we're kind of you know, familiar with this in the audience as well, of, um, of you know, basically someone pointing um, in that old, like, you know, kind of British World War One poster style and, you know, in the US as well, um, Civil War. So um, what had happened with, with one of the tattoo designs is that they basically mimicked this Dimitri Moore poster, but turned it into a really kind of derogatory message towards this, you know, towards the, the Soviet regime. Like, so what, like, essentially what, like, why are you, you know, like, like, why are you killing yourself working for this, this, the, you know, this horrible regime um, represented in the text on there? So, I, I was able to kind of use instances like that, and I considered them almost to be like memes, you know, in the way you know, <laughs> um, that we're very familiar with them now. So, um, what the majority of the, the the tattoo focus in the book is on um, interpreting various uh, signals from the regime through the forms of tattoos. And this is quite similar to kind of prisoner songs as well, as, as you can imagine. So uh, I have begun to develop much, much more extensive work on the uh, Baldayev archive. Uh, and that will be that will be out sometime sometime next year. Uh, fingers crossed. Yeah, I'm sure that's that's definitely something to look forward to. Uh, so what are some of the legacies of, of this criminal subculture in, in the post-Stalin period after, you know, the gulags are after Stalin dies. There's a large kind of you know release of, of prisoners. Uh, how does this? What are the legacies of this? I, I think for uh, I, I want to just immediately say uh, Vysotsky. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, I, but uh, th- and this is something that comes out through uh, the, you know the film Cold Summer of 1953 as well. So there is this. There are really really strong concerns about this cult of criminality spreading, and uh, Miriam Dobson has, has written. Um, uh, brilliantly on that. Um, so we we yeah we we get this situation emerging where you know, like these forms of criminal subculture become almost mainstream through figures such as Vysotsky and of course there are you know other people who are singing singing songs about being in camps in Siberia and so on. Um, more, but more in in terms of um, the impact on criminality, it's when we get the emergence of the mafia gangs of the of the nineteen eighties and. Um, the bit, the bitches war certainly that, uh, like becomes um, not not so much of a uh, like foundation myth because we have evidence that this you know this war is widespread and it's incredibly violent but certainly a foundational experience for them uh, and, and for those mafia groups which emerge in the 1980s and then and then you know um, the, you know the, and uh, are even more prominent in the 1990s. Um, like they can show that they, you know, their leg- their legacy comes from the gulag, and of course that's an incredibly, um, you know, incredibly prominent thing for them to for them to display. And and what place does the gulag of the Soviet period have in the in criminal subculture in in Russia today? Well, I I think there's been a real switch actually, uh, and uh, Mark Galliotti's like most recent book. Um, like very strongly suggested that there's there's really no place for this kind of tattoo culture anymore like we we, we get to see uh, you know kind of big businessmen um you know like um representing um you know these these criminal organizations and you know of, of course these um the criminal activities have changed a lot you know like tra- transnational smuggling routes and people trafficking and and and, and so on uh, i i think that the criminal subculture from the period that i've been looking at um, just becomes 
it's become really mainstream. You know, I, I've lost count of the amount of times I've been traveling on the metro and have seen, um, seen, seen, seen young people in their early 20s with, with tattoo designs, which have come from the Bald Eye of Collection. Um, and I've also started to see that in London now as well, quite quite worryingly. Um, so I th- I, th- I think that the like criminal society has certainly changed, you know, with the, with the impact of uh, you know globalization, um, uh, and and the elements that I that I talk about and their significance in the not in 1920s and 30s and and you know later than that as well, um, they have you know they they are kind of represented in um, in TV shows and films now more than more than anything else. Yeah, I was just going to say, like, in, in some ways, it, it perhaps it's gone undergone a similar kind of folklore and romanticism that you find, I don't know, in American mafia films, right? <laughs> you know, in like The Godfather, but also in, you know, some other Scorsese films and television shows that the, the, the memory and cultural resonance of all of this has really become part of the folklore of the society. Yeah, no, I, I, no, yeah, I think, I think, it, I think it absolutely has, and and I suppose this was my, my kind of way into this project was watching a film, uh, <laughs> so like things seem to have come full circle, really. But um, yeah, I, I would absolutely say that that you know, the, I mean, the, the the people that I've talked to certainly in you know in in London about their tattoos, um, I mean, like they 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 might have picked them out of a, a, a you know one of Fuel's publications and know that it's from this guy Danzig Balde, but they certainly don't know anything about the the Gulag. You know that part of it has been 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 kind of removed. Um, I think there is there, there still remains a, a, a big um, separation from the uh, memoirs that we have from the Gulag and and unfortunately now a lot more kind of archival documents and the type of sources that I've tried to put together. Um, it, you know, such as dictionaries of camp slang and, and the tattoo collections and so on. And, and finally, you know, as we started out, you know, most studies uh, of the Gulag either focus on its more administrative aspects, you know, in terms of forced labor or the camp administration, you know, through through those kind of very dry and bureaucratic documents that, that you mentioned. Um, and, and of course, the fate of and memoirs and memories of people who are sentenced under Article 58 and, of course, memory projects like from, you know, organizations like Memorial, et cetera. But so h- how does your study, you know, looking at criminal subculture, um, how does this provide us with a, a different, perhaps a different view or a different perspective on the Soviet penal experience? I, 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 like, I think that um, as I went through the project, I began to understand why no one had attempted it before. <laughs> uh, but I, I, I think more than anything, what I would like people to, not, not, not just the content of the book, but actually like the, the use of the various different sources and, and, and how we might be able to like br- bring together uh, like materials in a, you know, in, 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 in you know, an interdisciplinary way um, to try and make sense rather than just saying, well, there's nothing out there that we can use. Like, I, um, and this isn't just the case for the, the, the slang dictionaries and for the, um, for the tat- you know, tattoo drawings. I, I, I used a lot of criminology and penology as well. Like, there's some really great stuff on, um, on, on the Soviet Union and on contemporary Russia, you know, Judith Palo's work. Uh, and also Gavin Slade's work on uh, mafia in Georgia as well. So, and and there are a lot of excellent you know, penologists and criminologists in the UK who focus on institutions here that I was able to use. So, I, I think more than anything, um, other than like providing a, a, a way of demonstrating, oh, we can look at this different type of 
you know prisoners that I've identified as 49ers so in the hope that someone would come along and look at you know look at more prisons of different nationalities it would be how do we draw together all this material and begin to to try and understand it a little more rather than saying oh this you know there's just nothing out there that we can use and it's just become kind of cliche to have these you know like um you know, uh, criminals appearing in Hollywood films about the Gulag, for example. You know, it. it, it I guess this is an additional question. Um, there's something, uh, you know, in, in your descriptions of the subcult, criminal subculture in the camps. I mean, there's something, and I don't want to take this to overstress this, but there's something seems to be universal in terms of prisoner prison culture right because a lot of the things you described the the initiations the the preying on various groups of prisoners preying on one another the black market the relationship with prison you know prison officials i mean you a lot of penal systems around the world have these similar qualities so do you do you i mean what is your i guess what is your your view of that is there something universal about the prison experience that goes beyond you know uh, particular political systems. Yeah, and I, I was able to, to, you know, to, to to benefit from that scholarship as well. I used um, some work from um, from from Donald Clemmer on um, Ch Chicago prisons in the nineteen twenties, nineteen thirties, right around around that time. Um, again, my, you know, I I managed to find that through some of the other scholars who'd looked at uh, who look at you know contemporary Russia. But I, I think at the the core of it all, Sean, is, is survival. You know, like this, you know, the, the, you know this this. This this camp system is you know as it as it grows and it develops, um, it's, it's such a, a horrible place for anyone you know who who who's there and especially when the population you know continues to rise. I mean, we're, uh, we're we're talking about like this system contains like two and a half million prisoners at its at its peak, um, and there being huge problems in terms of rations at various times as well. So even though I find the the group of recidivists the crim criminal gangs like completely deplorable because of their actions. I think what drives them to create these card games where they basically make up the rules so they can steal clothes or food off other prisoners is just uh, it's just survival. So it's a very you know kind of basic human instinct really, um, and and that that I think is what comes comes out from um, from this question of um, uh, you know how universal is this as well. I I, I, I there there are only like this, um, this environment that um, prisoners are faced in um, doesn't change that much from from country to country. You know, there's a, there's a there's a limit to what you can do within the barracks or wherever you are. You know, the you know within the you know walls of the penitentiary as well. So, um, and I, I do think these groups self consciously adopt from you know things from each other as well. I think a lot of the um, emergence of the, the the mafia organisations in um, in um, the Soviet Union, and then you know after um, after in the nineties, I, I mean, I think they, they, they rip off stuff from the Italian mafia. Um, so I, I think it's the same with, with, with the different gangs as well. There's certainly, you know, yeah, over time, um, and with the development of, you know, different, different rituals and so on. So, um, there's only a certain amount of things that they can get up to, <laughs> um, within these, um, institutions. That was Mark Vincent. Mark Vincent is a historian based at the University of East Anglia in the United Kingdom, specializing in Russian criminality and criminal culture. He's the author of Criminal Subculture in the Gulag, Prisoner Society in the Stalinist Labor Camps, published by Bloomsbury. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. The SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, 
East European, and Eurasian studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. If you enjoyed this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter, like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia blog, write a review, or recommend the show to your friends. The SRB podcast comes cheap, but it is not free to make. You can help support it by joining the table of ranks at srbpodcast.org. Thanks to all my high excellencies, high well-borns and noblenesses for your continued patronage. And you can find past shows on iTunes and SoundCloud, or you can download them directly from srbpodcast.org as well. Until next time, bye. И вот сижу опять в тюрьме, Не светит больше солнца мне. На нарах, бля, на нарах, бля, на нарах. А на свободе фраера гуляют с ночи до утра. И шмары, бля, и шмары, бля, и шмары. Настала лучшая пора, мы закричали, бля, ура! Свобода, бля, свобода, бля, свобода. Один вагон напит битком, а я как курва с котелком. По шпалам, бля, по шпалам, бля, по шпалам. Вот захожу я в магазин, ко мне подходят граждане. Лягавы, бля, лягавы, бля, лягавы. Он говорит, твою да мать, попался снова ты опять. Попался, бля, попался, понял, попался. Вот опять передо мной Всю ночь маячит часовой С обрезом, бля, с обрезом, бля, с обрезом Какой я был тогда дурак Одел ворованный пиджак И шкары, бля, и шкары, бля, и шкары Сижу на нарах, плох ищу, Картошку чистить не хочу. Кошмары, бля, кошмары, понял, кошмары.